Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and it's my pleasure today to introduce you uh, to this podcast for uh, the journal uh, Global Summitry. It is episode seven in the Summit Dialogue series, and it is a podcast interview uh, with Angel Shu. She is the Assistant Professor of Social Sciences at Yale NUS College, uh, NUS, of course, being in Singapore. And she's also an adjunct professor at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. She's written extensively on the subject of carbon emissions reduction and on climate change policy and is, in fact, currently at the uh, Blavatnik School uh, at Oxford with our good colleague Tom Hale, another uh, expert on climate change policy. We were very keen to have Angel join us because she is responsible, along with colleagues, for a uh, summit report called uh, Global Climate Action from Cities, Regions, and Businesses. It's also my pleasure to introduce to you, and you will hear her involved in some of the questioning of Angel, to uh, Claire Floody. Claire was our, is our first Monk V20 Brookings Fellow. Uh, she is from uh, Toronto Centennial College uh, in the journalism program. So uh, let me introduce to you then uh, both Angel and Claire. So it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you uh, with us, Angel, for, uh, for this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's great. And I have the good fortune of also having with me one of my colleagues, Claire Floody, a uh, up-and-coming journalist who has been with us very recently in the uh, Buenos Aires for the T20. So we thought we'd uh, get together and get, get this rolling. So I'll, I'll turn you over to Claire in my very posh studio and let her pose the first question. <laughs> So Angel, thanks so much for being here. Uh, my first question to kind of get the ball rolling is uh, the Global Climate Action Summit that just happened in San Francisco, held recently from September 12th to the 14th. Can you describe it for us? Absolutely. So the Global Climate Action Summit that was recently held in San Francisco was an opportunity for cities, states and regions, companies, investors, civil society groups, individuals to showcase what they're doing on climate action. and. This is important because, as we know, national governments are simply not up to the task of getting us to where we need to go and by way of ambition and by way of deep emissions cuts to avoid the most dangerous effects of climate change and to reach the Paris Agreement's goal of containing global temperature rise well below two degrees Celsius. And so if you look at the scientific literature and the analysis, it shows that we're way off track um, headed towards a three degree Celsius warming world by 2100. And of course, just yesterday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this multinational body of climate scientists, came out with the special report to investigate what is needed in order to contain global temperature rise within 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this, the science clearly shows that, that we're really far off. So this was a really important event to convene all hands on deck and getting all these different actors from various sectors and levels of government 
and society to come together to put their heads down to say, okay, what what can what more can be done so, so that we can narrow this gap between what currently is on the table by way of national government efforts and pledges and where we need to to go in order to avoid um, dangerous cl- climate change. And so it was an opportunity for Governor Jerry Brown of California and Michael Bloomberg to host all these various representatives to have this really important exchange and to learn from each other and to also showcase some potential solutions. Uh, Angel, it's a good segue. I mean, one of the things that you did with some of your colleagues was prepare a report for that summit. It it was titled uh, Global Climate Action from Cities, Regions and Businesses. And in that report, you examined something like 6,000 cities, states and regions representing about 7% of the global population and another 2,000 companies with revenues that reached uh, aggregately about $21 trillion US, so it's almost the size uh, of the United States economy. Uh, And you uh, kind of looked at it in the context of the major global uh, greenhouse emitters, that is the the states, um, the big ones, Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, Japan, Mexico, Russia, South Africa, and the United, the United States, and the European Union. Um, what were the main conclusions you came away with uh, from this uh, significant report? Well, thanks so much for asking about this, Alan. And I will say that this report is the culmination of, of several years of research trying to answer the question of does it all add up? And so over the last several years and the past decade, there's been increasing participation of these various what we refer to as non-state actors. So businesses, cities, states and regions, investors, civil society groups, et cetera, stepping up to the plate and making these declarations on climate change, saying that they're going to make their own independent emissions reductions targets. So, for example, a city that says, I want to reduce my emissions 20 to 40 percent by 2030, as an example, or a company that says, I'm going to generate all of my electricity from renewable sources. And so a lot of these pledges that have been made, um, we see an uptick, a general trend over the last decade of more and more actors coming forth and making these pledges. But there's not um, there hasn't been a sense in aggregate in total what these different efforts and pledges actually measure up to. Are they significantly different from what national governments have pledged? Because, of course, we have to remember that these cities, states and regions, they don't just operate in isolation. They're embedded and nested within national jurisdictions. And same thing goes with companies. So are they actually measuring up to additional efforts beyond what national governments have pledged? And also compared to each other, are they just um, simply reflecting business as usual in current policies, are they actually reflecting some real ambition that's beyond what we currently see through the Paris Agreement pledges that national governments have made? So that was the starting point of developing this research report and and really wanting to develop information in a scientific database to support the um, contributions of these various actors in overall global climate change governance. Mm-hmm. And so what we found, um, we, we looked at this this contribution and this question of additionality really on two levels. So the first level is the individual pledge level, and that's those numbers that you just mentioned, the 6,000 cities, the 2,000 companies. We took, um, it was a, a huge data exercise. So we, we took um, all of these different actors' emissions reductions pledges, so where they made a specific pledge to reduce their own emissions um, by a certain year um, in, in 2030. 
And then, um, so that was the first level. And what we found is that when you aggregate everything together and account for overlaps and compare these pledges to those 10 high emitting regions that you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. we find that um, there's probably not that much additional impact that can be leveraged. So somewhere in the order of 1.2 to one and a half, uh, sorry, one one and a half to 2.2 gigatons of additional reductions in 2030. Um, so that doesn't seem um, to be that uh, substantial. If you think about the current gap between um, national government policies and two degree scenarios is somewhere in the order of 13 to 15 gigatons. And so that's um, you know, only a small percentage of, of getting us closer to, to that, um, that target. But then the second level of analysis is looking at what happens when you have hybrid coalitions of these non-state and subnational actors working together towards a common goal and also many times in conjunction with national governments. And so this would be, for example, the New York Declaration on Forests, which has a very ambitious goal of halting deforestation by 2030. And there are other examples like the RE100 initiative, which sets targets for some of the biggest multinational companies like IKEA and HP to uh, consume uh, only renewable electricity by a certain target year. And then um, different city networks that also have set really ambitious targets for their members. So then that second level analysis, we really evaluated the impact of those goals. Mm-hmm. What happens when those initiatives achieve all their goals of um, reducing emissions, generating 100% of their electricity from renewable sources, from um, also increasing the membership of their particular initiatives. So for example, the RE100 has a goal of increasing their membership to something like 2,000 members in 2030. And then they're currently only at around um, about 100 or so members. And so that um, shows a much greater potential for impact. So around 15 to 23 gigatons, which would put us back on track to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. And so that's um, showing up the scaled up potential when these individual actors work together. And and I think the key point is also in partnership with national governments, because, of course, some of these efforts like the New York Declaration on Forests also includes national governments. Mm -hmm. So those were the main findings of our report and really looking at two levels. What can we currently measure from individual pledges aggregated together? That number is significant. So we know that it's leading to measurable, significant additional reductions, just not a whole lot. And then the second level is is this international cooperative initiative angle um, that looks at at the goals of initiatives that um, involve multiple actors across different sectors. And uh, I think there are and on that level, the particular opportunities we found are in sectors that individual actors are currently not making as many pledges. So that would be in the land use sectors and then also in the non-CO2 sector. So HFCs, for example, mm-hmm. um, is, is an, a huge area that represents a lot of potential that these initiatives have targeted, but individual actors have not yet made many pledges focused on those uh, emissions. That's great. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you about the conclusions drawn by our colleagues, in particular Josh uh, Busby and Johannes Erpelainen, uh, who uh, wrote an, an opinion article for the Washington Post at the time of the San Francisco summit, and they suggested that the research shows that the subnational non-state actors, you know, they have promise, as you've just described, but cannot replace an ambitious national policy as the cornerstone of climate mitigation, these authors suggested that, given your report, that you supported this view. And I want to just get your own take on whether or not you agree with that. Absolutely. So one of the most critical assumptions that our report makes is that 
these non-state and subnational efforts from all these various actors is not displacing action that's already in place. And so that's a huge, huge assumption that we try to emphasize and underline in the executive summary and in every press release. And I don't know if it, it actually ended up making a lot of the media reports that covered mm-hmm. our research, but that's absolutely critical. So we assume that there isn't a kickback or a rebound effect where you have national government saying, oh, well, Coca-Cola is doing this or the city of, of San Francisco has committed to this. So we can just take a step back and we don't have to implement the policies that we said that we're going to pledge as part of our, our Paris commitment. And so I think that that's absolutely a critical assumption um, that that we that we make. And of course, I think there still is an opportunity for research and, and to really understand the relationship and these feedback mechanisms between cities and non-state actors and national actor pledges, how actually that um, dialogue and that exchange and the, the, the ratcheting up of ambition actually takes place. Because of course, right now in the UN process, national governments are being asked to review their initial Paris pledge that was made in 2015 and, and increase that because, as I mentioned at the beginning part of my remarks, we're, we're clearly not on track if we just look at the national government efforts. And so I think that that's, that's one crucial assumption, that national governments still have to follow through on the commitments that made if we want to see that additional 1.5 to 2.2 gigatons or scaled up that 15 to 23 gigatons. That's absolutely essential that national governments don't back away from their current efforts. And then I think also on the bigger picture, national policy coordination is absolutely critical to the success and the implementation of a lot of these subnational non-state efforts. So when you have favorable policies or incentive structures, those can, those can absolutely catalyze and galvanize non-state and subnational actors to do more. And so I think that that level of coordination is absolutely critical. And in our report, I think the, the best case of, of that particular coordination effect is looking at China. And so in China, you see um, just a blip uh, in terms of what the non-state and subnational actors are adding, um, because the way we recorded the data, these actors have to report to an international effort like C40 Cities for Climate Change or the Global Covenant of Mayors. So that's a critical limitation of the data, is that in order for us to be able to record their participation and and evaluate their efforts, they had to participate. So we were really limited in what China data we could get. But then when I spoke with Chinese counterparts and, and who reviewed our study, they said, well, wait a second, you're not taking into consideration China's national air pollution control plan, which has very stringent targets for many cities and companies to reduce their um, air pollution emissions. And same thing for their energy consumption targets and carbon intensity targets. Those are all top-down driven policies mm-hmm. that are binding for these actors. And of course, the voluntary... Um, nature of these activities that we register in the West and in these international platforms, Chinese um, counterparts don't find that there's as much of incentive to participate when they have these top-down targets that they have to meet. So that's a really clear case of where national policy is absolutely critical. And we've already seen through the early data that it's working in China. And they've already achieved their um, 12th and 13th five-year plan target, um, very likely to reduce um, carbon intensity 60 to, to or, sorry, 40 to 45% by 2020. So there's um, early indications to suggest that China's already already achieved that and that they will achieve their Paris pledge of peaking emissions well before 2030. Um, some people are saying as early as 2020, that peak could be achieved. So um, I think that that, yes, that's, I absolutely do um, affirm what, what Busby and Erpelainen said in that piece. Okay. Great. And Angel, um, in the report that you led, it states that 
Developed country actors also lead a majority of the ICIs, or International Cooperative Initiatives, although implementation in low-income countries has been rising over the last few years. What do you think are some of the major barriers standing in the way of developed countries spearheading ICIs, and if you have any overall recommendations to increase developed countries' environmental involvement? This is such a great question because um, a lot of the studies that we've published, including this one and then also the UNEP chapter on non-state actors, which was also released at the summit where I was a lead author in an earlier nature study that we published um, a couple years ago, it's it's you see the gaps very clearly in these ICIs where developed country actors are just simply not being registered. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think one is um, in terms of capacity. Um, so it's it's very costly and resource and, and human capital intensive to participate in these networks because you have to identify someone who has the ability to engage. Um, many of these networks, they, they have certain requirements. So not only do you have to make a pledge and sign up, but you also have to develop a sustainable energy and climate action plan, or you have to commit to an, uh, uh, producing an inventory. So for example, the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, in order to participate, you have to fill out a pretty lengthy disclosure survey, and often that involves reporting your greenhouse gas emissions inventory, baseline emissions um, disaggregated according to scope, so whether they're direct or indirect. Um, and so it can be very time intensive and, and resource consuming. And so I think that's one of the major barriers for developing country actors to participate. Um, I think another one of the barriers is is um, the fact that the ways that we measure ICI participation and climate action from a Western and, and global North perspective is not sensitive enough to pick up a lot of the action that is happening on the ground in developing countries, particularly on resilience and vulnerability and adaptation. And so what I mean is in a lot of countries and in my conversations and research with actors in these developing countries, um, they are taking action on climate change and particularly they're focused on adaptation and resilience, um, but it's not being called climate change action. It could be called um, economic development, for example, or sustainable development, and it's tied into the sustainable development goals. So I think um, that's another barrier for why we're not picking up and seeing a lot of participation from developing countries is because the ways that we we are relying on this data, which is individual actors reporting their own data and and, and reporting on how they're doing on these on these various targets, it's not sensitive to the, the, the capacities and the particular needs and the activity that is going on in these places. So um, what we need to be doing is, is to engage these actors and, and thinking of, of innovating new methods of, of really being able to engage them and, and to track them because these are the, the actors that are the most impacted by climate change and also are going to be responsible for the lion's share of emissions moving forward. Thank you. Oh, yes, and recommendations. So, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, it, it, yeah, I think being more sensitive and coming up with new methods of engaging um, actors. So one of the projects that I'm working on here at Oxford, where I'm um, currently based, is uh, called Climate South. And so this is a project in collaboration with Pro uh, Professor Thomas Hale, and it's uh, developing a framework and, and helping to better define and to characterize and to shape what climate action looks like in Global South countries and developing a code book for how we might start to think about collecting data differently for these areas. And so um, this project has started in Kenya and also in India, and we're working on expanding this to China. So I think that's one way to increase involvement is, is to, to sort of change the, the, the structure and the frameworks for, for how we're involving them 
Um, and then I think also um, building more relationships and partnerships and giving opportunities for these actors to really showcase what they're doing. And that was one of the, I think, greatest parts about the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. You had uh, um, actors and different groups from Latin America that were there showcasing what they were doing. And we had no idea. As scholars, I mean, Tom was also surprised. I mean, we've been studying this um, this 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 research for a really long time. And and um and then also actors from China, they had a whole China pavilion where um, I found out that there's a, a China business climate change action platform with over 800,000 Chinese business actors that have pledged some type of action on climate change. And that's not in any way reflected in our uh, report. And so um, I think that's also that was a great opportunity to learn more about what these actors are doing in these areas where you don't see as much participation because of the ways in which we've been measuring international cooperative initiatives and climate action in the past. Thank you, Angel. Uh, my next question is separating national policies from international cooperative initiatives and individual commitments from cities, regions, states, and companies into three separate groups. If we're using the U.S. as an example, which has the greatest impact on reducing emissions? Yeah, that's a really tricky question. It's tough to answer because, um, as I mentioned, there are these these two levels. And uh, with international cooperative initiatives, again, uh, they can be really coordinated and engage multiple actors from different levels. So national governments included and, and, and actors from uh, very local levels and, and, and across different countries and across borders. And so I think um, I think but I think also the challenge with a lot of these ICIs is demonstrating their impact and tracking progress. And so that was another really big assumption in our report. We assumed 100% implementation, both on the individual scale and then also on the ICI scale as well. And of course, um, if you look at history, like for example, in 2002, the World Sustainable Development Summit in Johannesburg, where there was also an emphasis on sustainable development partnerships and very similar type coalitions, um, there's, there was later research that suggested that nearly two thirds of them were still seeking funding or had never really gone off the ground. And so I think that's a, a pretty key uh, assumption, and it's and and that part of the the report I think received the most scrutiny and criticism because we got those those same questions of how do you know that those initiatives are actually being implemented? What evidence do we see? And um, how do we know that they're going to deliver on what they the stated that they were going to deliver at at the time of their announcement? And I think that's the the really big assumption, particularly for those initiatives that make huge assumptions about scaling up in terms of involving more actors or including a wider range of emissions. Um, so, I mean, I think, um, yeah, that's that's a really tricky. So I'm, I'm just going to equivocate and say that's a really complex <laughs> question. But I you, it is imperative that all three work alongside each other because you you can then uh, develop these functional redundancies and 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 hope that even if some of them fail, that something will succeed and and deliver those uh, emissions reductions. So I know that wasn't really exactly a strong answer, but that's certainly something that I think um, requires a lot more research. No, that that's really fair. You actually took the I literally had written down on my piece of paper why is it imperative that they work alongside one another. So you took it out of the words out of my mouth. <laughs> So my, okay. <laughs> my next question, Angel, is you were quoted in the New York Times uh, just before the summit saying that, but so far such pledges have produced more talk than action. Is this still your view? 
Yeah, I mean, it's still early. So um, I, I think the reporters and media have a tendency to, to a lot of times um, pick up on, on the negative or the juicier bits or the um, perspectives that may differ a little bit from the mainstream. And of course, there was a lot of fanfare and a lot of energy and, and hype surrounding the Global Climate Action Summit. So I think a lot of reporters were naturally looking for some some uh, perspectives that weren't just cheerleading what was going on. Um, I think I think that when we look at the evidence, um, that is one part where I think um, is it, it actually absolutely resonates. So going back to our study and that first level of individual action, when we first started to design the study and collect the data and develop the models to evaluate the impact of all these various non-state actors, we thought that the impact was going to be much larger. You know, we were thinking in the order of, of maybe between three to five gigatons, which would have been um, almost halfway to closing the gap between national pledges, current policies, and uh, two-degree scenarios. Um, but then, as, as I mentioned, what we found was only about 1.5 to 2.2 gigatons when we accounted for overlaps. So I think that was a little bit disappointing that the number was so small. And I think that that also speaks to the fact that what we found is many of these individual pledges are not that ambitious. And I think it's not necessarily individual actors' fault, fault necessarily, but um, because there, it's never been aggregated before and put together in, in one succinct report. And that was really our aim as researchers to be able to provide this information at the summit and say, look, it's all well and good that you're making these pledges, but are they in line with what we need to happen in order to achieve our, our goals of 1.5 or 2 degree scenario. And so that's the origin of this initiative called the science-based targets is to help provide guidance to companies and non-state actors to set targets that are ambitious and that will lead to uh, emissions reductions that will get us closer to the goals. But many of these pledges that non-state actors have made in the past are just simply political. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to bring up this example that a colleague, um, I don't I don't want to name names, but was talking about individual actors of one case of, of a province or a, a, a state that says, oh, I'm going to reduce my emissions 19% by 2020. And a neighboring province that says, well, wait a second, I'm going to I'm going to commit 22% because that's three percentage points more than what you pledged. But that's you know, may not at all be ambitious or leading to actual absolute reductions that are larger than um, than the other province. So I think a lot of that is happening. It's 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 happened in an uncoordinated and an organic fashion. And um, I think now is the time to pair the science and the data with the pledges so that we can have that uh, that alignment of where you have non-state actors making pledges that are science-based that will lead us closer to our goals. And then we can have data that tracks and um, can then actually understand where there are challenges in terms of implementation and also facilitate learning and um, cross-pollination between actors that are successful in achieving their goals. So yeah, I mean, I think it's still, it's still very early and the challenge with even evaluating this statement of, of pledges um, being more talk or, or act than action is the fact that there isn't any data. There's very, very little data that allows for ex post evaluation of what's been achieved. And that I think is, is the greatest challenge. And so some of the things that I'm thinking about now, just to give you a, 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 your, and your listeners a teaser, is, is how can we use um, next generation technologies to innovate on how we actually track these pledges? And so I, I hate to be this person that is just jumping on the blockchain bandwagon, but I'm, I think I'm there. <laughs> so it's like, let's get this thing in a distributed ledger. Let's get AI and technology and um, smart contracts. Let's get them in on this and let's involve uh, citizens as verifiers of this action. And, and let's, let's get technology to help us because uh, I, from speaking from personal experience, I spent about three years putting together this database for this report and it was really, really hard work. 
um, and, and lots of incomplete information full of errors and inconsistencies. And um, simply, we can't wait. We can't wait much longer to get uh, solid data if, if we um, want to have any, ha- any chance of achieving our goals. So, so Angel, um, is, was there a, a, an announcement of a follow-up uh, summit uh, at, at, at San Francisco? And if so, when is it? Where is it? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the good news is that there will be another summit next year focused on global climate action, and it's being hosted by the UN Secretary General and also Bob Orr, who is the Dean of the Global Policy School at University of Maryland and has been a special advisor to the UN Secretary General for many years. Mm -hmm. And so they will be hosting in September of next year a follow-up to this summit, which I think is really great because I think the worst thing that can happen is there's a lot of effort put into one of these events and then it just all disappears in the ether. And there were dozens of pledges that were made in San Francisco. So I think this will be a critical time for us to now keep tabs on what was actually pledged in San Francisco, and the next year check in on what was actually achieved. Okay. Well, we, we could, certainly couldn't leave you without some questioning around uh, the IPCC report, which of course came out just a couple days ago. Um, uh, the report identified uh, the following. The United States is not alone in failing to reduce emissions enough to prevent the worst effects of climate change. The report concluded that the greenhouse gas reduction pledges put forth under the Paris Agreement will not be enough to avoid the 3.6 Fahrenheit, I take it that's the 2 two degree centigrade, uh, warming. So, I mean, uh, again, how can uh, the non-state actors, the sub-state actors, how can they kind of take this uh, bull by the horns and move things, particularly in the light of the fact that, of course, many of these um, uh, uh, actors cannot impose carbon taxes. And it still sounds as if carbon taxation is the kind of uh, central feature of uh, a likely success. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think um, Jerry Brown is a prime example of how one of these sub-state actors or or state actors can really take the bull by the horns. And I mean, he pledged at the Global Climate Action Summit that California is going to go 100% renewable by 2045. I mean, that's really ambitious. That far exceeds the ambition of the U.S. Paris Pledge, which now, of course, the current administration is backing away from. So, I mean, I think, I think those kinds of, of pledges are really, I mean, I think provide a lot of um, promise and, and hope that we can get closer to our goals. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, I think there, there's also a lot. So, uh, a lot of the literature on non-state climate action and the role in, um, in global climate change governance suggests that these non-state actors can provide a lot by way of um, catalyzing more ambitious national action, either by demonstrating um, uh, the ability to reduce emissions at a more ambitious pace or a faster rate, mm-hmm. by also um, providing experimentation. So in China, this is, again, another example of where before they launched their national carbon emissions training scheme, they piloted at the province level. So they had seven pilots in uh, two municipalities and, and and five other provinces in China to build confidence that at the national level, when they rolled out the national trading scheme, that it wasn't going to be a total flop and they could really learn from the various experiences of the regional and, and provincial um, pilots to, to make it a success. 
And so I think that's a, that's a good example of um, non-state of subnational actors providing that policy confidence, allowing for experimentation to go for more ambitious national policy. Um, I think the same goes for uh, capacity building on, on different um, uh, either technologies or particular policy interventions. Um, so I think there, there are many different ways. And um, for us, the, the, the key is, is to be able to then evaluate exactly how much these different mechanisms, so whether it's it's catalyzation or helping to provide facilitation or orchestration, or if it's also helping to um, provide this experimentation and confidence, how can we actually take into account all these different functions that non-state actors play to get a better estimate of what the, the, the actual contribution can be on overall emissions? So I think there's a lot more methodological development and research and, of course, data collection that needs to go into that in order to make those estimates and those quantifications a lot more solid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of I read the report. I mean, yes, it was a really sobering and depressing look at, at where we are. But I think also at the same time that there's a lot of potential. And now we know how bad it is and we know exactly a very clear roadmap and the clear timeframes. I think that was the key of this report in synthesizing all the scientific literature. We know where the gaps are. And so now it's really can we mobilize the political will um, to actually get there? And I think that was one thing um, coming from San Francisco that was very clear that there is a whole lot of support from the bottom up to actually mobilize um, action. Well, one last question then, and I'm throwing it unfortunately back up to the state level. I wonder if you had uh, any reflections, reactions. First of all, obviously, uh, the impact uh, of uh, the Trump administration's decision and to pull from uh, the Paris uh, Climate uh, Change Agreement, uh, even though it's not yet being uh, affected, but nevertheless, uh, looking at uh, U.S. policy uh, and regulation change, and now the threat that the far-right candidate uh, in Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro, uh, is uh, Mm -hmm. on track to win, uh, as we know, Brazil is a particularly important uh, element in the overall effort to reduce uh, carbon emission because, of course, of the Amazon and the withdrawal of Brazil, it would seem to me, but I, I'm interested in knowing your reaction, uh, would be quite significant. Yeah, and then add Australia to the list as well. So I think there are a lot of national governments that are also threatening to follow the U.S. And I mean, I think that that's just absolutely detrimental to, um, yeah, to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. And um, yeah, I mean, our our research shows in the United States uh, with the rollback that the Trump administration has promised and also um, retreating from the Paris Agreement and the pledge made and. 2014, that um, the non-state um, action can't supplant and can't replace entirely that national level action. So I think that's a very clear case of, of how detrimental these policies are for the U.S. to, to follow through um, on its on its Paris goal. So it's it's not possible. You know, we looked at 19 states. So we know there's there's less than half of, of U.S. states that are really um, have signed up and have pledged uh, to to tackle climate change. And so that's also really detrimental. And um, even with California making an ambitious pledge, it's not enough to offset what's what what Trump has has promised. So mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, it is. It is absolutely detrimental. And so I think that then puts more pressure on non-state subnational actors to deliver. And so this will be an interesting conversation to follow at the upcoming climate change negotiations in 
uh, Katowice in Poland, where national actors will be asked to revise their Paris pledges and submit a more ambitious uh, pledge. And then there will be more evaluation of what that looks like in the early new year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, now it just puts even more pressure on non-state national actors. And so there's there's a lot of stake here. Well, I really want to thank you. I think my colleague Claire uh, also wants to thank you. But I hope we get the chance maybe to come back uh, and revisit some of these issues uh, following the uh, Polish uh, summit, uh, the COP there, because uh, obviously uh, important decisions uh, are being made. I take it the rule book, in fact, yes. is, being, is being concluded, which I take it would help in trying to measure the effect of the commitments. Yes, absolutely. So I think that'll be a really key moment. And then also this past year, the UN Climate Change Secretariat has been facilitating the Talanoa Dialogues. And so that's directly taking into consideration submissions from non-states and national actors formally into the process. And so that's another effort to further engage non-state actors in the national level conversations and the global um, governance structure for climate change. So, yeah, I think it'll be a really interesting uh, summit. And, and yeah, I also I'll be there. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy to report back what I learned in a future conversation. We'll hold you to it. <laughs>